All right. So, in 1958, Abraham Lincoln said this. He said, our reliance is in the love of liberty, which God has planted in our bosoms. Our defense is in the preservation of the spirit which prizes liberty as the heritage of all men, in all lands, everywhere. Destroy the spirit, and you have planted the seeds of despotism around your own doors. And so he was on the brink, our country was on the brink of a great conflict, and yet you could hear in him this, this love of, of, of freedom and a willingness to sacrifice for that freedom. Later on, near, near the end of the war, he said, it is not merely for today, but for all time to come that we should perpetuate for our children's children this great and free government which we have enjoyed all our lives. It is for this the struggle should be maintained that we may not lose our birthright. And again, he was urging a perseverance so that we wouldn't lose the freedom that, that, that we had received. Now we're going to read Galatians chapter 2, the first part of Galatians chapter 2 today. And I think we're going to see a similar spirit, a similar resolve to not give up freedom. But in this case, an even more precious freedom, a greater freedom, where the Apostle Paul has the same kind of determination and he says, we will not yield we must preserve our birthright, and that is a gospel of grace and of freedom. And so, we are going through this, this uh, uh, series. We just began a couple weeks ago going through the book of Galatians, this letter that the Apostle Paul writes to this, these churches in the region of Galatia. And we are going to, to uh, focus on the first part of chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, this morning, however, I would like to read the last half of Galatians 1 for us again as well. Now, from Galatians 1:11 through 2:10, Paul is really just telling his story. And he's saying how he came to Christ and, and then how he ministered early on. And so he's telling this story. It's in two parts, but really it's just one story. So I want to read the whole thing and then concentrate on chapter 2. So you can read along with me. It's on page 972 in your house Bibles. And we'll read Galatians 1.11 through 2.10. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, so Paul tells this story, and he recounts actually almost a couple decades of of events here. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through those events. We're going to lay out a little bit of the timeline, the history here. John Larson uh, laid that out, some of that out for us last week, but we're going to to, uh, summarize again what he shared and expand on that timeline. And as we walk through the sequence of events, I think it's really important to lay out some of the context and the history because the Bible is a history book and it's it's about the lives of real people and real experiences with each other and real experiences with God. And when we understand what was going on here and we we understand the humanity of it all and the the emotion behind it, I think it enhances the, the theology that is trying to get across here. So we're going to spend a little, a fair amount of our morning going through this timeline and just trying to understand the sequence of events and where we're at in Paul's life. So we're going to start here with the crucifixion of Jesus in AD 33. Now, all of these dates are going to be approximate. Okay, where there's, there's a, a little bit of debate about, about when many of these events happen, but we're going we're to just put up some approximate dates knowing that they could be, give or take, a year or two. So we're going to start with the crucifixion of Jesus in the year 33. Shortly after, after the, the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, um, the, the church, of course, began to grow. And the, and the early church sprang up, and, and it sprang up by the thousands. But in the process, Saul, or Paul, as he was also called, began to persecute the church. Now, we know a few things about Paul, what he tells us here in what we just read in Galatians and in other places. Paul, for one, was advancing in Judaism very, very quickly. Now, I think Paul was a sharp guy. Okay, he was just uh, thoughtful. He, he had this sharp mind, and he was very driven. And because of that sharpness and that drivenness, he was climbing the, the, the ladder of religious respectability. And so he was just moving up that ladder very, very quickly. He was, a, he, he was a driven guy. And a part of that was that he was violently persecuting the church and trying to destroy that. And so he recounts that in several places. But he was, he was pursuing Christians and having them put in jail and even put to death. And so he was a sharp guy. He was very driven. And he was persecuting the church until Jesus appeared to him. Paul was, going on the, was walking along the, the road to Damascus, a, a city to the north of, of Jerusalem a ways. And while he was traveling there, Jesus, the risen Lord, appeared to him. 
and knocked him off his, his donkey and, and blinded him and saved him. Now, after that happened, remember John last, last week, he took us through how, how, how radical of a transformation this was, going from Saul the persecutor to, to the apostle. But immediately after he, he was saved by Jesus, he, he began to preach in Damascus. Okay, he continued along his way to the city he was, he was uh, going towards, and he preached there, but soon he was forced to flee because the Jews there were intending to kill him. So he was lowered through the city wall in a basket, and he had to flee. Right away, again, he's just, just a few days old in the Lord. He starts preaching because he had this sharpness and this ability and a lot of, a lot of background knowledge. And so once um, God opened his eyes. He could take all of that knowledge and he could use it and wield it pretty powerfully. And so he did that, but he made a lot of people mad right away, just days old in the Lord. And so they chased him out of town. Paul then goes into Arabia and later returns to Damascus is what he says in Galatians 1. Now, three years later, as we just read again in Galatians 1, Paul visits Jerusalem for the first time. A few things to note about this. First, he tried to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him. We read about that in Acts chapter 9. And they were justifiably afraid of him. Again, he had been arresting them and putting them to death, and so they were afraid of him. So they were pretty leery about receiving him. However, Barnabas said, no, I, I, I think God has genuinely transformed him. And we can welcome him in here. And so Barnabas brought him in to the apostles. And he stayed with them, but only for 15 days. And he saw only Peter and James. Again, he tells us that in Galatians chapter 1. At the same time, he was preaching in Jerusalem. But again, he, he, had, to, he had to skip town. Because they were ready to kill him there as well. Okay, this is three years into his, his uh, life as a believer. He again had to run because they were trying to kill him now in Jerusalem. After that, he tells us that he went into Syria and Cilicia. These are the regions north of, of, of Israel. And, um, and he went there and eventually he settled in Antioch. Barnabas, who had brought him to the disciples in, in Jerusalem... Barnabas, as John explained last week, he went and he found Paul, who was in Tarsus, and he brought him to Antioch, which is a, a city in Syria. Now, we'll look at the map here. This is the map that John showed again last week. And, um, and we'll try to... How do I do this? Maybe not. We'll, um, <clears throat> we'll go by the numbers there. And so... So, so Paul is at, at Jerusalem, and he's going north along one of those red arrows to Damascus to arrest Christians, but on the way, uh, Jesus meets him, saves him. He goes into Damascus, he preaches there, makes a lot of people mad, and then he um, uh, is chased out of town, and then it says he goes into Arabia, so he goes to the east there. He returns to Damascus, and then he goes back down to Jerusalem. Jerusalem Again, this is the three years after he came to Christ. He goes back to Jerusalem, but he gets chased out of Jerusalem as well. And so then he goes up north, way up, up to the top of the map there to Cilicia and to Syria. And he's in Tarsus up there at the top, and that's where 
Barnabas finds him and then he brings him a little, little to the south and to the east to Antioch because the church was exploding there and Barnabas needed some help. Okay? So um, he's, he's, he's in Antioch there for, for a while, helping build up the, the new thriving church. After he spends some time there, Sirius, Lycia, Antioch, he returns to Jerusalem. And this is the, the visit that we read about in today's passage in Galatians 2, 1 through 10. So Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem, one, to offer a gift of financial relief to the church. We're told that in Acts chapter 11. This was about 14 years after his conversion, um, which, which we note in Galatians 2, 1. So 14 years after his conversion, he, and he came there, one, to bring this, this gift to them, financial gift, but then he set before them the gospel that he preached. Okay, so we're going to dive into that a little bit. But let's wrap up some more of this timeline first. So after he visits Jerusalem, he returned to Antioch. And from Antioch, he was commissioned by the Holy Spirit. We're told in, in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit sets aside Paul and Barnabas and sends them out. On, on this first missionary journey. Okay? And so they, uh, they go out on this journey and they, they uh, uh, travel through many towns and they go to the region of Galatia and they preach in several cities there but are chased out of each town as well. Let's go back to a, a, a map. And so what you'll see here is that... Um, I'm going to try to do this maybe... There we go. Okay, so, so he's, he's going to start at Antioch here. That's where he's at. Holy Spirit sends them out. They go down to Cyprus, go across this island. Then they turn to the north and go across the sea again. And they land up here in Pamphylia, Lycia. And then they travel north and they're going to, to arrive at another Antioch. This is a different Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. And they start preaching there. And then they travel east to Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. These are the cities of Galatia. And again, they, they, they begin to preach there. They, they work amazing miracles. God enables them to heal and to just demonstrate that his power is with them. And they see many people come to Christ. And these churches are raised up. And yet at the same time, although the crowds are coming to Christ, of course, there's a contingent of people that resents it, that feels threatened, that feels jealous. And so they get really upset. And again, they chase Paul and Barnabas out of town. In one of those towns, Paul is stoned. They think he's, he's dead, but he, he picks himself up and he goes to the next town. And after he's completed his little circuit through Galatia, he turns around and decides to go back through all those towns that he just got chased out of, that he just got stoned in to strengthen the disciples. And after that, he returns back to, to, uh, to Antioch. Now, after that, he writes Galatians. Okay, so probably shortly after he returns from his trip here through Galatia, he writes to them. He gets word of how they're doing, and so he writes this letter to them. After that, he, he travels to Jerusalem for a third time, and this is recorded in Acts chapter 15, where there's the Jerusalem council, and they meet to to determine with finality whether or not the Gentiles, the non-Jews, should be required to be circumcised 
um, to come to genuine faith. Basically, the question is, do they have to become Jewish before they become Christian? Okay? And so they meet in that council, and they determine, no, the Gentiles do not, they, 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 they are not required to be circumcised, and so they write a letter, and again, Paul takes that to the Galatian churches and beyond. Okay, so there's, there's our timeline. And again, I think that's important. I think, uh, I think just to try to frame how things happen in the sequence of events will add a lot to what he's saying here in Galatians chapter 2. So, I want to make a few observations from what we just went through in that timeline. Some observations from Paul's life thus far. Number one, Paul is provocative. He's pretty hard-hitting. I imagine Paul... Prior to redemption, in his flesh, I kind of imagine him to be a pretty abrasive guy. Um, Again, he had a sharp mind, and I think a quick mind, and he was logical. I think he could argue well. We see that throughout. He could argue well, and he was probably not the kind of guy you like to argue with. you, you, You were made to feel like a fool, I think, when you argued with Paul. Now, God redeemed that, and I think gave Paul an amazing tenderness and affection. And you see that all through the New Testament is that he loved people very, very deeply. But he still had that sharp mind, and he still had that that ability to persuade. But he travels from town to town, and remember, right away, a few days old in the Lord, he went to Damascus, and they hated him. And and they were going to kill him right away. Now, there were other Christians there. Remember, Ananias welcomed him. And, but Ananias was, they, they weren't trying to kill Ananias. Okay, these other Christians weren't stirring things up like Paul did. But Paul stirred things up. He went to Jerusalem. Again, they tried to kill him. In just 15 short days, they, they were made angry enough that they wanted to kill him. Then he goes up through those towns in Galatia. And every one, they want to kill him. And they kick him out. And they stone him. They, they, they almost do kill him. Once. He's pretty provocative because he is a champion of the truth. And he's unyielding. And he's, he's going to, to bring the truth sometimes without reservation. And that would often anger people. So he was pretty hard-hitting. Number two. Paul had very little interaction with the Jerusalem apostles for at least the first 14 years of his Christian life. Now this is the whole point that he's trying to make through this story that he's telling is that he grew up in Christ with direct um, interaction with Jesus, not so much with the other apostles from Jerusalem. He had a couple touches here and there. But really, they they, they developed their their faith and their preaching separately. So he makes that point from his story. Thirdly, Paul's first missionary journey was intense. So he just described that. But he goes through each of those towns... And it was intense, and it was intense for good, and it was intense for bad. It was intensely good in that he did preach, and lots of people came to Christ. It was was amazing, I think, in each city. The city was just transformed by his preaching. So lots of people came to belief, and he worked amazing miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. He worked miracles in each of those towns. And so it was, I think it was an electric environment as he was going through each of those, those towns, and yet there was great opposition, like I described before. They tried to kill him everywhere he went. So Paul's first missionary journey was intense. 
Number four, remember Galatians was written shortly after Paul's ministry to the Galatians. Could have been within a year. He returns from this journey, and then somehow he gets word of how they're, they're doing, and so he writes this letter, perhaps just a matter of months after he first ministered to them. He's writing this letter. Because of that, Paul was incensed because the Galatians were so quickly being led astray after such powerful salvation experiences. Now, you can imagine this. I mean, just try to, try to understand this from Paul's perspective. He had given so much. He had risked so much. He had almost died. He had been a part of these amazing experiences. The Galatians had experienced the profound power of God. And it was exciting. And they came to belief. And these churches were springing up all over. And then he leaves them. And he comes back in just a few months after that. He hears that some others had somehow gone to those cities and they had begin to, begun to turn the Galatians from the true gospel. They had started to add requirements to the gospel. And so you can imagine if, if you had poured yourself into a people and, and you'd seen amazing transformation in them and you'd seen the power of God and then that was being stolen away, of course, it's going to stir something in you. And we see that in Paul. Okay, so there's a few observations from that timeline we just went through. Now, I want to move to our, our passage today that we read earlier, Galatians 2, 1 through 10, and share some observations from, from those verses before we wrap up with some summary thoughts. So observations from Galatians 2, 1 through 10. We're just going to march through, through these verses. Number one, Paul and Barnabas took Titus along with them. I just wanted to point this out. This is what he says in the first verse. Paul and Barnabas, they were in Antioch. They, they go down to Jerusalem, and they're delivering this financial gift, but they're also going to have some conversation with, uh, with Peter and, and the other apostles, hopefully. But they take Titus along with them. Now, we don't know a lot about Titus's background. Okay, he's not mentioned in the book of Acts. Um, he is mentioned especially in the, in the book of 2 Corinthians. He, he really partnered with Paul in, in ministry to the Corinthians especially, I believe. Um, he also has, has a book of the Bible. God, or, or Paul wrote a letter to Titus that we have in our New Testament um, at that point, uh, Titus was in Crete. Paul had left him there to straighten some things out and appoint some elders, and so he was in Crete, which is an island just south of, of what's, what's now Greece and Corinth and, and Athens. And so he was ministering with Paul in that, that area. However, Paul picked him up pretty early. Even before his first missionary journey, he was partnering with Paul somehow. But he was a Greek. He was a non-Jew. Paul is going, along with Barnabas, to Jerusalem, and they're probably going to have some sort of confrontation or difficult conversation here. But he decides to take Titus along with him. I'm thinking, poor Titus. <laughs> um, Titus was, was kind of going to be a test case here. Okay, he was going to take Titus down to Jerusalem, into the lion's den, and see what happens with Titus. 
Titus was willing, apparently. Titus was willing, and they were going to confront this circumcision question. Was circumcision necessary for, for a Greek? Okay, so he takes Titus along with him. Next, we can note from verse 2, Paul was directed to Jerusalem by God. Okay, so, so he says, I went up because of a revelation. Okay, revelation is if God specifically, directly guided him to Jerusalem here. So God took him there, and when he went there, he set before them his, his gospel, though he did it privately. So he's not just coming in with guns blazing. I think he took aside privately those who were influential to have a conversation with them. Okay, I think he wanted to do this well. But privately, he talks to them, and he sets before them the gospel that he was proclaiming to the Gentiles in order to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. Now, I read that last section and that those last phrases, and, and I wonder what was going through Paul's mind here as he's questioning whether or not he was running in vain. I think previously I'd wondered, was, was he doubting here? Was he unsure about the message that he was bringing? It was kind of like, like John the Baptist. Although John the Baptist had been given these amazing experiences, there was a point while he was in prison where he began to wonder, is, is Jesus really the Messiah? And, and was Paul doubting his message? Well, I don't think he was. I think as we read this passage, I think he was coming again pretty determined, pretty resolute. He was ready to defend the message that he was bringing because he knew that it was true. And he wasn't worried about running in vain in terms of, no, this was the wrong message. He was, he was concerned, though, if he got a negative response from the Jerusalem apostles, this was going to make things really hard on him. And um, he was going to lose a lot of credibility with the people that he was trying to reach. So, he was, but he was directed by God. And, and so he obeyed God and went to them and had this conversation. But next... The apostles did not require circumcision. So even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And so this was the whole issue. This was the question that they were going down there to determine, is there, is there something in addition to simple belief, faith in the grace of God, that is required by God for salvation, specifically circumcision? Must these non-Jews, these Greeks, become Jewish in a sense by being circumcised in order to experience genuine salvation. They had that conversation, and the answer was no. No, the, the apostles agreed, and they said, no, Greeks do not need to be circumcised. And this must have been a glorious moment, and so relieving for Paul that there was this agreement and this alignment. No, it's just by faith. Just, just through God's grace. And even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised by these men. Number four, as he, as he goes through verses four through six, there was opposition. These false brothers come in to spy on the freedom that they had. And they try to convince Paul and Barnabas and the apostles that circumcision really is required and so there was that opposition right away, but Paul was unwavering. Again, he was not being wishy-washy here at all. He was unyielding. He said, no, we didn't give in to them, not for a moment, so that the, the genuine, authentic gospel of freedom 
could remain with you and all future generations. And so we held firm and we refused to be moved from that place. Next, Paul and the Jerusalem apostles, although having little previous interaction and ministering in different environments, shared a common gospel and they discovered this. And they discovered that they were preaching the same thing. And they agreed that although they had different realms that they were responsible for, Paul was to go to the the uncircumcised and Peter and others were to go to the circumcised. Although they had, had different people they were working with, they were preaching the same thing. And again, this must have been just a, a glorious moment here. And I, and I feel like I've, I've experienced this um, at times. I have gotten the opportunity to, to travel some overseas, and um, I've, I've uh, interacted with, with other believers in, in Europe and in Latin America and in East Asia. And I go to each of those places, and a lot is, is new and different and awkward and and, um, and confusing sometimes, and yet at the same time, when I go to these other churches and other places around the world, um, it, it feels very much like home, too. Like there's something familiar there. Like these are brothers and sisters, and we share this common understanding. We share the grace of God, and it's, it's everywhere. And, and this, it, it just runs throughout the, the church worldwide. And you can... You can experience it. Experience it. It's palpable. This, there's this common grace, and I think they were experiencing the same thing. Okay, although they had been separate for these 14 years, for the most part, they came together and realized, no, we've we've been walking in the same things. We have both received the grace of God, and this was to give a confidence that even though they didn't have uh, much interaction with each other. The same God, the same spirit, the same grace was working in all of them, and they recognized it. And so they gave each other the right hand of fellowship and and agreed that Paul should continue to go to the Gentiles while the others stayed with the Jews. And then six, the last verse of of this this, uh, section, evangelistic mercy was to be accompanied by tangible expressions of mercy. And so again, they recognized this common grace. And I think what, what might have been even more profound is that they, they were very much in agreement on what was to come along with that evangelistic ministry. And they, they, um, they only encouraged Paul to continue to remember the poor. And he says, that was the very thing that I was eager to do. And again, this, this common grace that was flowing through them, um, it stirred in them this care for the poor. And so even though their, their ministry was very evangelistic, it was, it was bringing the gospel, a remembrance of the poor um, necessarily went along with that. Okay, so, so there's a, a bit of a, a summary of our passage today. Now let's, let's wrap that up and offer a few conclusions or, or, or summarize some thoughts. So in summary, number one, Paul defended the gospel vigorously. And so this is so much of the, the, the point here, is that, that he would not yield. And, and he, he worked hard to make sure that that freedom, the freedom that comes along with grace, was preserved for everybody. 
And so he was resolute here. And he, he was not going to, to um, step back at all. He defended the gospel vigorously. And he did that because the gospel is precious. And the gospel is precious and he knew this. And he knew that freedom that came along with the gospel was something that was so valuable. And it had to be held on to. Okay, this gospel that says there's nothing that we add, there's nothing that we bring that qualifies us before God. It's not like we, we climbed up that mountain or that we can climb up that mountain to reach God. No, our, our legs are broken. He came down the mountain. And then he picked us up and put us on his shoulders and took us up the mountain to him. And there's nothing that we really contribute. All we do is we yield. We just submit. You know, those, those of you that are parents, you know when a young toddler does not submit to you picking him or her up. And somehow they just instinctively know how to contort their body so that they can't be lifted. <laughs> um, and we do that sometimes. But all that, that God really asks is that we simply relax and that, that we receive him and let him just pick us up and put us on our shoulders, his shoulders, and take us up the mountain. And if we add anything to that and if we try to say, no, I can do it myself, and we contort our bodies, we are enslaved then. Okay, that's bondage when we're just trying to take responsibility upon ourselves. No, we, we, don't, we don't have any responsibility. We can't. We only deserve that death penalty. And so we simply humbly yield in faith to God, and he does the rest. And that's the gospel of freedom, and it is so freeing. It's so beautiful. It's so precious and valuable. And Paul saw it that way, and he said, I am going to preserve this. We must keep this freedom. We can't add anything to it. So the gospel is precious and, though, the gospel is constantly challenged and drifted from. And we see this all through the story as well. It's really pretty wild. Paul comes to Jerusalem. He has this conversation with the apostles, but he says, false brothers sneak in and they try to turn the, the direction here. Um, he goes to those churches in Galatia. They, they come to Christ. Amazing things happen. He leaves them, and right away, others come in and start to distort the gospel and embellish it some, and, and those Galatians are turned. And you just see in this the natural human tendency. We so easily drift from the gospel and try to add responsibilities onto ourselves. It seems counterintuitive. It seems like we'd want freedom, but it's hard for us. It's hard for us to receive that freedom. Now, I, I, just for our, our purposes here, I wanted to point out what I think are a couple different kinds of gospel drift. Here. When we drift from that freedom in the gospel, when we try to add things to it. Now, I think both of these types of, of gospel drift, there's a lot of overlap here, but I want to point out two distinct types. And those are, number one, a clear theological drift, and then number two, a subtle drift in priority. Let me describe each of those. A clear theological drift. 
So one, this is when, when there's a, there are codified additional requirements for salvation. Okay, it's like in the documents, in the statement of faith, you must do this as well. And this is driven by simple wrong belief about God and how to gain acceptance from him. And so this, this is what false religions do, what cults do, is that they add, and even unashamedly add things to the, to the gospel, add requirements for salvation. So there's a clear theological drift there. But I think there's another kind of drift. It's a subtle drift in priority. And I would describe it this way. The elevation of values or practices so that they appear to be the primary features of the faith. Okay, there, are, there are certain things that are, that are probably good. There are values, there are practices that are good ones that you want to incorporate into your Christian life, but they, they rise up in priority. And these second or third tier values or practices, they become first tier. Okay, that that happens. And this is often driven by a desire to win approval from people. So in Galatians 1, verse 10, which Perry shared with us a couple, a couple weeks ago, Paul says that if he was still trying to uh, win the approval of men, he would not be a servant of God. And so he juxtaposes these, these two. You're, you're either trying to please people or you're a servant of God. And they're mutually exclusive. There's, there's not a lot of overlap there. And this happens in, in lots of Christian communities. And of course, we're very susceptible, susceptible to it. This is our natural drift as well. We, I don't think anytime soon, we're going to add things into our statement of faith. Like on that left side there. It says, salvation, for salvation, you also need this and this and this. But we're very susceptible to the, to the one on the right there. And what happens is so often we, we uh, receive the gospel of grace and, and begin to walk in that freedom. And then we, we start looking around and we at least perceive certain values or practices in our community that, that seem to be elevated. And we start to be primarily concerned about aligning ourselves with those practices so that we fit in with others and we gain approval. Okay. And that, that happens, of course, all the time. We, we drift. We, we drift from that priority of grace and freedom and then start adding things on to win the approval of God or each other. Now, quick, quick caveat here. I am... Um, I came to believe in Jesus in 1996. And as I understand it, the, the Christian church in America in the 1980s and the 1990s was sort of known for, negatively looking back, was known for its, its pragmatism. That um, at the height of the church growth movement, there was a, a strong emphasis on certain practices and, and, and practically walking in them. Okay. I think that, that began to be recognized, and as we moved into the 2000s, um, there was a, a, a turn there, and you started hearing a lot about um, being gospel-centered. You hear that phrase a lot, and, and still do. And that could mean a lot of things. 
but in large part, it meant anti-pragmatism. Okay, that that we we wanted to make sure that we weren't emphasizing um, just the practicals or some form of of moralism, and I think that was that was very good, and it refreshed the Christian church in core gospel truths. Now that pendulum can swing too far, to the point where you can no longer call people to obedience. Um. You can no longer give moral directives or, or emphasize certain practices. And, um, and you start seeing like a moralist under every rock and that kind of thing. And, and, and so you can swing that, that way. And I, I don't think we want to swing too far and not be able to call each other to obedience. So we got to watch that. However, I would say the natural drift... The natural drift just in our human nature is to take certain practices and elevate them and make them central. These values define us. They're primary. And because of that, we have to be vigilant in guarding the freedom of the gospel. And I think as a church, we feel like we we just want to have our eyes out constantly to make sure there are no good practices or values or causes that begin to supersede the priority of the gospel. We still still want to maintain that. And so we want to be like Paul here in vigilantly guarding the gospel and making sure that freedom is preserved. Band, you can go ahead and come on back up here. I just want to go back to this summary as they're coming up. Remember, Paul defended the gospel vigorously. And we see that throughout these chapters. He was resolute because the gospel is precious. It's worth defending. And walking in freedom is a wonderful thing where you don't feel obligated to win the approval of God or man because you can't. And it all depends on him. And so the gospel is precious, but it is constantly challenged and drifted from. And so we have to recognize that. And whenever we start seeing something take precedent over grace and freedom, we, we might need to beat it down a little bit. Okay, so we can, we can join together in keeping that, that gospel focus, still calling each other to obedience but defending the gospel of freedom.